1: What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's August second, 2012 in South London, and 12-year-old Tia Sharp is spending the night at her grandmother's house. The next morning, she is supposed to leave the house and head to Croydon, a town in South London, to meet up with some friends. Tia is due back home that evening, but she never arrives. And there is no evidence she ever went to Croydon. Tia has vanished. The last person to see Tia is her grandmother's partner, a 37-year-old man who Tia affectionately calls granddad. Over the next few days, Tia's family will make a desperate attempt to find the missing girl, handing out flyers, enlisting community members to help look for her, and even doing a televised interview in the hopes that she could still be found alive.
2: I knew this was an interview with a killer, no doubt about it at all.
1: What followed her disappearance would be one of the most publicized search campaigns in British history. But on August 10th, it would come to an abrupt end with a twist that would shock both the public and Tia's family. Tia's body and her killer had been right under their noses.
3: He knows exactly what happens. He's the only one who, who knew what happened in this situation. And I think the, the fact that he has all this knowledge and these other people don't, he's really getting off on that.
1: This is what makes a killer a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Notoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Stuart Hazel Stuart Hazel was born on May 26, 1975, in Kingston-upon-Thames, Surrey, England. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Hazel was introduced to a life of dysfunction from an early age.
3: His father was in and out of prison, so there wasn't a lot of stability. It was quite disorganized. It was quite chaotic. He spent quite a lot of time in the residential care system. He was moved around quite a lot. And I think that did have quite a significant impact on his personality because he didn't really form attachments with other people. So that kind of absence of warmth, that absence of closeness in those early years is something that that really does shape him.
1: By the time Hazel was a teenager, he was already involved in petty crime. At the age of 13, he was drinking heavily. He received his first criminal conviction at 14. This lifestyle didn't stop as Hazel entered adulthood. Between 2001 and 2010, Hazel was in and out of prison for a variety of offenses ranging from hate crimes to drug dealing. He even spent a year in jail for possession of a machete in a public area. In 2003, 28-year-old Hazel began dating Natalie Sharp, the single mother of then-three-year-old Tia Sharp. The relationship didn't last between the two, but after they split in an unconventional turn of events, Hazel began seeing Natalie's mother, Christine Bicknell,
3: well, I think Stuart Hazel is somebody who is quite predatory, um, who identifies people that, that he can get things from, essentially. And he had a relationship with, with Tia's mother that lasted all of about two and a half weeks. And very soon after that, he started a relationship with Tia's grandmother, which, which was much more, more longer lasting.
1: He was a decade younger than her, But that didn't stop him from, in 2007, moving into Christine's home on the Linden's estate in New Addington, South London. He settled into his new position as family patriarch and enjoyed spending time with Christine's now seven-year-old granddaughter, Tia. Meanwhile, Hazel struggled to find work thanks to his time in prison.
3: It's very difficult to to maintain regular, well-paid, steady employment when you have a, a lengthy prison record. So he would go from job to job doing work cash in hand and all of that type of thing.
1: By 2012, Hazel found work as a window cleaner and was still living with Christine. Over the years, Tia grew close to her grandmother's boyfriend, and she even called him her grandfather. On Friday, August 3rd, Tia Sharp disappeared hazel was just as clueless as the rest of the family as to her whereabouts nick scola was the leading investigative officer on the case
4: tia went to her grandparents house on the 2nd of august and that was a thursday she was supposed to have stayed there overnight and then friday morning gone into croydon and she was due home friday evening at about seven o'clock but she never returned But by Saturday evening, it was clear she wasn't coming home. She hadn't made contact with her family or any of her friends. Levels of worry and suspicion obviously became higher. I led a major investigation team. It was myself, two detective inspectors, five detective sergeants, approximately 20 detective constables, and some civilian support staff. I called my team in for an 8 o'clock meeting on the Sunday morning. We got together we read all the handover files that had been done during the course of the Friday and the Saturday and started to set some lines of inquiry.
1: Along with the detectives, there was a massive turnout from community members to help find the missing girl. That soon led to the media descending on New Addington. One of the reporters at the scene was Sky News correspondent Martin Brunt.
5: I had a call from Scotland Yard. Um, I was aware that a girl had gone missing, but I think there was a sense early on through police contacts that this was rather more serious. They were very keen for us to give a lot of publicity uh, to the circumstances of Tear Sharp's disappearance. That suggested to me that they were already suspicious that she may have come to some harm.
1: Investigative journalist and former police officer Mark Williams-Thomas was also intrigued by Tia's disappearance.
2: I think what was very clear from the beginning, both in terms of talking to family members, also being aware of her as an individual, was that this isn't something that was likely to be herself running away. And it had now become a number of days that she'd been missing. So that concern about something having happened to her, I think was very, very real. And when I went and looked at the area, my focus was very much on those people who had the last contact with her. And therefore, I wanted to try and speak to those people as quickly as possible.
1: On Monday, August 6th, three days after Tia vanished, her family made an emotional appeal in a press conference for her safe return. The police were desperate for any leads about Tia's case, Officer Nick Scola received a new piece of information that he says made him focus on one member of the family in particular.
4: It soon reported to me that Tia had spent the evening at her grandparents' house. During the Sunday, it became clear that actually her grandmother wasn't present and Stuart Hazel wasn't her natural grandfather. That made us very interested in the accounts he would give.
1: As they continued the search, police grew more and more suspicious of the last person to see Tia, a man whom she loved and trusted, a man who was pleading for her safe return. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a
3: qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: In August 2012, police were searching for a missing 12-year-old girl named Tia Sharp. She'd traveled from her grandmother's home in New Addington to Croydon on Friday, August 3rd. Somewhere along her journey, she disappeared.
4: We've got several hypotheses I start to work from. The first one is that she didn't go to Croydon, that she was still on the estate somewhere, playing with friends, staying with friends, and deliberately not coming home as a missing person. There's a lot of open countryside around the estate. The second hypothesis, she's gone out there to play And she has come to accidental injury and is laying unconscious or otherwise disabled outside. Thirdly is that she's still on the estate and she's been abducted by somebody on the estate.
1: The small community of New Addington rallied around the Sharp family to help find Tia. Thousands of posters and leaflets with Tia's photo were spread across the area. Investigative journalist and former police officer Mark Williams Thomas remembers the flood of support for Tia and her family.
2: She was a nice young girl. And so as a result of that, the concerns became heightened. There was huge public response within the community, within this estate. And I think as a result of that, it grabbed public's attention. I
5: think... People who were watching TV saw the blanket coverage that we were giving to the case, and I think they perhaps picked up on the fact that the police were more concerned about her disappearance than they might be with disappearances of of other girls. I think throughout that week, there was a growing sense that this was a girl who probably wasn't going to be found alive. It was a story that I think more and more people, as the days went by, believe that this was a story that would end in uh, the discovery of her body.
1: Among the search party was the last person to see Tia before she vanished, her grandmother's partner, Stuart Hazel. Sky News correspondent Martin Brunt talks about Hazel's behavior in the first few days after Tia went missing.
5: He would walk out of the house and go off to do his daily business or to get involved in searches uh, or to make an appeal uh, in front of the cameras. He seemed to be doing what you would expect him to do uh, in furthering the search for his uh, missing step-granddaughter. I mean, I don't think his behavior in front of the cameras um, was particularly alarming, but from early on, he was clearly a suspect for the police, and we shared the same view. The last person to see Tia was always going to be somebody that the police
3: would have an interest in.
1: Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley provides further insight into Hazel's demeanor.
3: Stuart Hazel places himself right in the middle of this campaign. You see him walking around wearing a, a t-shirt um, with, with fine tear on it, almost as if to, to try and prove that this is exactly what happened and I'm not covering anything up.
1: Sky News correspondent Martin Brunt recalls taking note of Hazel during the coverage of the investigation.
5: What it did for me as a reporter covering the case was to give me lots of vision of him because we did see him out and about on the estate joining in those searches. And there was a a vigil one night, and we had some very vivid images of him walking towards the the setup on the estate with a candle in his hand, looking very concerned uh, and joining in the search for Tia.
1: He was playing the part of a concerned family member But the fact that Hazel was not directly related to Tia made him of interest to the police.
5: I had a call from somebody involved in the investigation saying, be very careful about your choice of words. He's not Tia's grandfather. He's her step-grandfather. He is her grandmother's boyfriend. Now, the very fact that somebody was telling me something like that, uh, again, made me feel that Scotland Yard certainly saw him as somebody that they needed to show a particular interest in. I think they were suspicious about him from the start. Bear in mind that he said that Tia had left the house in the morning to go into Croydon shopping, and yet the early searches of CCTV eyewitnesses found nothing to corroborate what he said.
1: With no sign of Tia in neighboring areas, police turned their attention to the last known place Tia had been seen, her grandmother, Christine Bicknell's house. Leading investigative officer Nick Scola believed something about Hazel's story didn't add up.
4: He gave an account that they'd spent a very happy Thursday evening together, got up Friday morning, he'd made breakfast, and Tia decided she was going to go and visit friends in Croydon, meet a friend in Croydon. The unusual... Part of that aspect is that we visited the house, we found that Tia's phone was still there, her mobile phone. And at the back of your mind, then you're wondering, well, how exactly are you going to arrange to meet a friend? Perhaps when we were younger, we'd arrange to meet at three o'clock at a certain place, but people today, young people today, they, they need the mobile phone to make the arrangement.
1: On Tuesday, August 7th, five days after her disappearance, Surveillance footage of Tia was released. In the video, she looked relaxed as she walked around a supermarket with Stuart Hazel. These were the last known images of her before she went missing.
4: When I was dealing with Tia's family, they themselves had no suspicions that Stuart Hazel may be involved. No one took me to one side to say, perhaps we're not happy about Stuart or anything along those lines. In actual fact, quite the opposite. They trusted him, and I could see from the CCTV that Tia very much trusted him. She enjoyed going to her grandparents' house. She had younger siblings at her address, and there wasn't a lot of space there, so she got some time and attention from her grandmother, and her grandmother helped to make sure she got to school on time and just generally provided support for her.
1: The following day, Officer Scola and his team received more information that would distract them from Hazel. The next door neighbor told police he saw Tia leave for Croydon on the morning of her disappearance.
4: What certainly frustrated the investigation was the evidence of the next door neighbor. He knew Tia well, and he clearly stated he saw Tia leave for Croydon at the time Stuart Hazel said. So he came up with this statement and it affects your whole investigative strategy because it directs attention away from the house back towards where she abducted or taken on her way to Croydon or whilst in Croydon or returning.
1: Later, police would learn that this was false. Tia's killer convinced the man to lie about seeing her leave the house by now police had searched hazel's home twice and found no evidence that he had anything to do with tia's disappearance with the neighbor's eyewitness account backing up his story stuart hazel appeared innocent
4: so whilst it was clear that the media were portraying stuart hazel as a suspect you must go where the evidence takes you and there was no evidence that stuart hazel was involved in Tia's disappearance at that stage. This is
3: somebody who had very little control over his life in his early years, his early days. But now, he he would see it as, he's the one who's running the show. He knows exactly what happens. He's the only one who, who knew what happened in this situation. And I think that the fact that he has all this knowledge and these other people don't, he's really getting off on that.
2: He put himself right at the center of this. He needed to know what was going on because don't forget, he knew exactly what had happened and he wanted to keep as much as possible away from the home address.
1: On Wednesday, August 8th, police combed through Hazel's house for a third time, this time with specially trained dogs.
4: I then asked a body recovery dog search premises because the searches hadn't been destructive, the bath panel hadn't been removed, floorboards hadn't been lifted. It's hopeful then the body recovery dog would give an indication if there was a dead body there. Still a missing person inquiry, but just in case. The body recovery dog didn't give an absolute indication, but a handler afterwards told me that it behaved unusually in one of the rooms. So, armed with that information and the fact the investigation, again, we're checking the facts and the investigation decided to have a more forensic look at the house.
1: Yet again, police left the home with no new leads to bring them closer to finding Tia.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
1: By Wednesday evening, there were more than 50 reported sightings of Tia Sharp, and police were still hoping she may be alive. As a forensic team prepared for a more detailed search of the home, Hazel thrust himself into the spotlight. He agreed to a televised interview with investigative journalist Mark Williams-Thomas from ITV News to tell his side of the story. I said, right,
2: whatever happens, we run throughout. So even if we break, we keep the recording going so so the mic's on constantly. And I said, just go with it. Whatever happens, go with it. So we got in, we set up, and Stuart was really anxious. He was very anxious.
1: That TV interview would make a concerned relative look like a guilt-ridden killer.
2: What I needed from him was a really detailed account in real micro detail about what happened from the point that Tia came to the home to the point that she was last seen by him. So minute by minute, as much as he could, breaking that down. And that's what I did. And I got him to talk in real detail. Because I knew that every single piece of that interview would be poured over by the police. Because by the Thursday morning after the phone call that I'd had saying Stuart would give an interview, I knew this was an interview with a killer. No doubt about it
1: at all. Body language expert Robert Phipps was certain Hazel was lying.
6: Stuart's behavior throughout this interview is inconsistent with somebody who is in turmoil, worried, you know, anxious about Tia Sharp being missing. His body language is far too animated. He's shrugging his shoulders a lot. People shrug their shoulders when they're saying, I don't know. But he's giving supposedly truthful statements and saying, I don't know.
1: Hazel gave a tearful account of the details leading up to Tia's disappearance and pleaded for her safe return. He spoke about how much he loved her, saying, she's like my own daughter. But Mark Williams Thomas said he became increasingly suspicious of Hazel as the interview continued. And I think he was struggling at times,
2: sometimes, to be able to remember what he necessarily said to everybody else. And of course, the more detail I asked of him, the more difficult it became for him to remember exactly what he'd said. Because what he couldn't do, of course, was give me something that he'd given to somebody else differently.
1: Hazel gave incredibly specific details about how they had spent their evening leading up to Tia's disappearance. He recalled their entire trip back home from a co-op, including street names, the directions they turned, and even bus stops along the route. As for the morning she went missing, Hazel said, She walked past me from the front room to go out, walked out the front door, that is all I know. Robert Phillips says that amount of detail is a common tactic people use when they are lying
6: so he 's adding in other bits that make it sound truthful. Now when you talk to most people to, who recall a story, they don 't tell it in a logical, orderly sequence. They start saying something and then they remember something else, and the conversation next to you or the statements that they 're making chop and change.
1: Sky News correspondent Martin Brunt recalls watching the interview.
5: He seemed to me somebody who was insincere uh, his Breaking down his almost tearful performance smacked to me of somebody who was trying to put on a performance. Uh, the fact that he was sitting there with the T-shirt, uh, find tear, uh, I think there was a picture of her in the background, all suggested to me that this was a man trying too hard to appeal for information when he knew exactly what had happened to her.
1: Not everything was as it seemed with this so-called loving step-grandfather. One interested viewer was the detective leading the case, Nick Scola.
4: So whilst Hazel was a person of interest at that time, there was no evidence to suggest he had actually been involved in Tia's abduction. So for that reason, you're clearly interested in what he's got to say. We were surprised when the... TV interview came out because the family never told us it was going to take place. We'd been with the family that morning and then suddenly that evening his interview is appearing on TV.
6: Interviews like this with Stuart are crucial to the police in helping them gain a further understanding to what they already know because the person is sort of off guard because it's not the police interviewing them anymore.
1: Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley adds more insight into why Hazel chose to bring so much public attention to himself.
3: Stuart Hazel is a narcissistic predator. Um, He sniffs out other people's vulnerabilities. He inserts himself into families where he will be looked after and he will be pandered to and he will have the things that he wants. And I think what what we can see when we look at him performing in his interviews with with television and with newspapers, um, he is the the center of attention, And he absolutely loves that because he's fully in control of, of everything that's going on around him.
1: On the day following the interview, police were due at Hazel's home to carry out a forensic search of the property. That morning, Tia's grandmother noticed a nauseating smell coming from somewhere in the house. So she calls the police.
2: The police turn up and it was a family liaison officer that walks into the house and goes, Yeah, you're right. Everyone
1: out. It would be the fourth and final time police searched the house
4: we went back on that Friday morning, immediately the officers went into the house. They could smell uh, a very strong smell that from their experience, they recognized to be that of a decomposing body.
1: They followed the smell up into the attic where the police made a dreadful discovery.
4: Pushed into the eaves was Tia's body completely wrapped in black bin liners and taped in very tightly.
1: After a little over a week of searching, Tia had finally been found. She'd never left the house. Instead, she had been murdered in her grandmother's home and tucked away. For an entire week, her body was basically hiding in plain sight. The entire nation was stunned.
2: Yeah, a very sad moment because you, know, you always live in hope, although the reality is is probably less than a percent. You always live in hope that she will return and, until they've found the body.
5: I was gobsmacked. Um, we had watched detectives, forensic teams, police dogs go in and out of the house uh, several times. But even I, at that time, didn't think for a moment that they were about to say they'd found Tia's body in the house where I'd been standing outside for the best part of a week, and the police had searched three times already i just got off the tube, and my phone went mad, with loads and loads of
2: text messages, voicemails. Anyway, I read one text message, which was from a colleague of mine at the BBC, a correspondent. He said, you know, they found the body. And I said, where? And they said, in the house. I said, you're joking. And he went, no, in the loft. I went, that's terrible. And I said, well, where's Stuart? What's happened to him? And they said, oh, he's on the run. He's gone.
1: Stuart Hazel, their prime suspect, had fled. On Friday, August 10, 2012, police discovered the body of missing 12-year-old Tia Sharp. Her body was found stashed away in the attic of the home belonging to her grandmother and her grandmother's longtime partner, Stuart Hazel. Hazel was the last person to see Tia, and police were increasingly wary of his involvement in the case. Hazel had played the part of a concerned relative, handing out flyers and even making a tearful plea for Tia's safe return during a televised interview. But investigators had never written him off as a suspect. After the discovery of the body in Hazel's home, police were eager to bring him in. On the morning of the discovery of Tia's body though, Officer Nick Scola says Hazel was nowhere to be found.
4: Hazel had told Tia's grandmother that he was going to get a paper, and he disappeared and never came back, so we immediately mounted a London-wide search for him. He was seen on a train going up towards central London, and again, we know he got off that train in the city of London and we searched for him there. He then disappeared off the radar for a short while before reappearing in a supermarket.
1: Sky News correspondent Martin Brunt says security footage from the supermarket shows a distressed Hazel buying a bottle of vodka and rambling to the people in the store.
5: It was obvious to those in the
4: shop who he was, and they were aware that police were looking for him. The owners of that supermarket recognized his face from the press appeal and contacted police. Hazel, by that stage, had gone into an area of open parkland um, where he'd he bought vodka in the supermarket where he drank the vodka. Um, police searched for him and a, a police dog found him in the undergrowth.
5: This all unraveled on a Friday early evening and by late evening we were told that he'd been arrested.
1: Hazel was brought in for questioning but refused to cooperate and asked for his lawyer. At the same time, a post-mortem was underway at Croydon Mortuary. Lead investigator Nick Scola and forensic pathologist Stuart Hamilton say the state of Tia's body made it difficult to gain any new information for the investigation.
4: Clearly, Tia had been dead for a week, and unfortunately, the body had begun to decompose quite badly. If you've
5: got somebody who's wrapped up to prevent the smell getting out, they're potentially in somewhere that's not particularly warm, which will retard decomposition. In this particular case the passage of time and the changes that had occurred to the body in the post-mortem period really limited what pathology could tell you.
1: The police still had no evidence that Hazel killed Tia, but a further search of the loft uncovered her clothes and glasses. Also, hidden elsewhere in the house was something that would finally give investigators what they needed while exposing Stuart Hazel as a disturbed man.
4: On the inside of a cupboard door, above head height, was a memory card for a digital camera. We recovered deleted images from that card that were quite disturbing. There was some where he had searched the internet and found pictures of girls that were not dissimilar-looking to Tia, in that they had glasses and a similar hairstyle. But worst of all on that, memory card was perhaps the most grotesque image I've ever seen so we took the photograph to show a pathologist and he pointed out the hypostasis on it which is essentially how the blood pools on a dead body and this pathologist was of the opinion that that was a picture of a dead girl
1: along with the pictures were a number of videos
4: one was of Tia sitting on a settee Looked like she's rubbing suntan lotion, some kind of cream into her legs. Clearly, he'd given the impression perhaps he was sending a text or something, but all the time he was secretly filming Tia.
1: And one chilling video undeniably linked the camera to Hazel.
4: It showed Hazel filming Tia when she was asleep. He'd obviously gone into her room and was walking around her with the phone in his hand. He also just briefly filmed his own shadow on the wall menacingly standing over her.
1: On Saturday, August 11, 2012, Stuart Hazel was charged with the murder of Tia Sharp. He was remanded to custody at Belmarsh Prison. Hazel wrote a letter to his father claiming Tia's death was an accident and that he was contemplating suicide. He wrote, I can't sleep, can't eat, I wish I could turn back the clock, but I can't. I'm sorry to have lied to you all, but I didn't know what to do. Forgive me. On May 7, 2013, nine months after the murder of Tia Sharp, the trial of 37-year-old Stuart Hazel began. He pleaded not guilty.
4: Hazel pleaded not guilty at court. His defense case statement indicated he was going to say that Tia had accidentally fallen down the stairs. Um, He had panicked, didn't know how to tell her mother and grandmother that the granddaughter was dead, so panicked and hid the body. And that's the stance he maintained throughout the prosecution case.
1: Forensic pathologist Stuart Hamilton says that the idea that Tia died falling down the stairs was highly improbable.
5: The training of forensic pathologists is... Not only to identify injuries, but to recognize patterns of injuries and to suggest that someone had died of falling down the stairs. There are very specific things that we would expect to see. And if we don't see those, you can fairly quickly exclude such an explanation.
1: Investigative journalist Mark Williams-Thomas was in the courtroom during the trial.
2: So the interview I did with Stuart Hazel opened the trial up from the prosecution's case. The trial sat through, and information started to come out, and it was very clear that Stuart Hazel had become very sexually uh, interested in
4: Young Tia. And one of the searches he'd carried out on his mobile phone on the Internet was incest sex, Um, and that just highlighted and reinforced that interest.
1: Tia's family was among those in the courtroom. The people Hazel stood alongside during the search for their missing 12-year-old girl. News correspondent Martin Brunt recalls watching the interaction between Hazel and Tia's mother.
5: For Tia's mom, seeing Stuart Hazel in the dock uh, would have been the first time she had seen him uh, since the day of his arrest. And I can remember trying to watch the interaction between the two. It's a classic thing that crime reporters look for to add color to the reporting of the first day of a trial. And she looked at him, stared daggers at him, if you like, and as far as I can remember, he spent those first few moments and most of the trial looking down, not wanting at all, for very obvious reasons, to catch the eye particularly of Tia's mother, but for any members of Tia's family, um, quite a few of who were there.
1: On the third day of the trial, a piece of evidence was shown to the courtroom that would be the final blow for Hazel. Forensics had recovered photos from the memory card found hidden away in Hazel's home. The entire courtroom, including the Sharp family, were appalled at the sight.
2: They were so upset. They were, they were unbelievably upset because, you know, they'd heard the detail, but there's one thing hearing it and another thing seeing it. And at times they actually had to leave.
1: It appeared that it was all too much for Hazel as well. On May 13th, in a massive shock to the public, he changed his plea to guilty, stating, Tia's family have suffered enough.
5: I think you can only imagine the reaction of people in court. There were gasps, there were shrieks, there were uh, tears from some of those in the public gallery. It really was one of those courtroom moments of real drama. I've seen a few, but this is still very vivid
1: in my mind. However, lead investigator Nick Scola is convinced Hazel changed his plea for more selfish reasons.
4: Hazel definitely didn't change his plea to save the family any more agony or despair. He changed his plea because he was a coward, because that morning he would have to account for the disgusting photograph of Tears' death. He just didn't have the moral strength to do that.
1: On May 14, 2013, Stuart Hazel was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 38 years. In his sentencing remarks, Mr. Justice Nichols said that Hazel had developed a sexual interest in Tia, but that the murder was not necessarily sexually motivated. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley elaborates...
3: Now, that does seem to be a bit of a confusing thing to say on the surface, but essentially what the judge means there is that, that Stuart Hazel is somebody who has a, a sexual interest in, in young girls. But in terms of did he kill her in order to have sex with her? Um, possibly not, we, we can't know that for sure. But the overarching theme here is, is power, because that's what sex is about. Um, it's about power over another individual, especially when it comes to Stuart Hazel.
1: Stuart Hazel has never spoken about how or why he killed Tia Sharp.
2: All I can tell you from Stuart Hazel is that he took away a life, a precious life of a young girl who had an amazing future in front of her. And as a result of that, he has impacted on many, many other people's lives. And he deserves to spend the rest of his life in jail.
3: I don't think we'll ever know what made Stuart Hazel kill Tia Sharp. That's information that I don't think he's ever going to share with anybody, but we can surmise a little bit as to the context of it. He's trusted to look after this girl and he abuses it. And we don't know what the circumstances are around that, whether he felt that she would perhaps tell somebody about something that, that he had done to her or to, to somebody else. But but it was, he found himself in a situation where he had to control her. He felt that, that she had slipped out of his control and, and she posed some kind of a threat to him.
1: In August, 2013, Hazel's next door neighbor, the one who gave police a false witness statement, was sentenced to five months in prison. This was the man who lied about seeing Tia leave the house on the morning she disappeared. And in June of the same year, the house where Tia was murdered was bulldozed to the ground, perhaps as an attempt to blunt the pain caused by that sickening murder.
3: I think Stuart Hazel did some incredibly evil things, um, but he chose to do those evil things. He could have chosen not to, and he was fully aware of, of the impact of, of his actions.
2: I, I mean, I don't know, sad and sad. It, it's just really sad, the whole thing. When you add it all up, you get to the situation. You know, here was a young girl who loved her gran. He loved her mum, but loved her gran, loved spending time with her gran. You know, She saw solitude in her grand, as many, many young children do. And to go to a place where, of course, that eventually was where her death occurred um, was, was so sad. And, of course, nobody could have predicted that other than Stuart Hazel. If that is in torment, if he lives in anguish every day, if he regrets or he thinks about what he's done every single day, then so be it. He's a horrible man. He's a dangerous man. You know, Stuart Hazel is is the reason that she's dead. Nobody else. Stuart Hazel. And, if Stuart Hazel hadn't done it to her, in time he'd have probably done it to somebody else.
1: What Makes a Killer is an audio boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Notoso. This series is produced by Audio Booms Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, and Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kredgy. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beal and Janelle Patel. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to those involved with the case, willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, Don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have a moment, we would love for you to leave us a review. Thanks. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... 1969, Santa Cruz, California... 21-year-old Edmund Kemper was just released from a facility housing mentally ill convicts. He'd spent five years there after killing both of his grandparents. What Kemper did next would terrify everyone in the college town.
4: Do I think Kemper is an evil man? The answer has to be yes. He is the definition of violence and evil. You pray nobody else is out there like that again.